Shell is an international energy company and our purpose is to power in progress together and basically create more and cleaner energy solutions for our customers in our quest to become a net zero emission company by 2050. Well, people like to talk about digital, I would say the D of digital is actually data. The necessity for companies like Shell with a huge part of consumer businesses or you know, product type organization businesses, the, the ability for us to actually understand where our data sits, control our data through standards and definitions and make sure that we drive value out of that data through the right tooling is absolutely essential. There's never been a greater time to be in IT or digital, I would say. I think the opportunity space to really work on stuff that makes impact in society through digital revolution is, is just you know, exponentially bigger than maybe in the generation that you and I grew up in. This is CRNet TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Robert van Rutten who is the uh, downstream CIO and Senior Vice President at Shell. A very warm welcome, Robert. Well, welcome to you, Henrik. Robert, you have a background in business economics and an MBA with honors from the Tilburg University. You have worked for more than 32 years at Shell in both upstream, downstream, commercial, finance, uh, technology, IT. Your previous role, you were the CIO of the Global Functions and Information Risk Management. And so you are also the, the global CISO. And in 2020, you became the downstream CIO. So Robert, tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's your background and how did you arrive in this position? Well, your summary makes me feel really old, Hendrik. Um, yeah, 32 years uh, at this amazing company. Mm -hmm. uh, spent first 12, 13 years primarily in finance type roles. I'm actually a management accountant by trade. Uh, then spent five years in, uh, in marketing type roles, actually selling uh, diesel and lubricants to commercial road transport, which was a great experience and in many way, you know, helps me uh, to become a very effective and business focused downstream CIO at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it was roughly about 12, 13 years ago that I got sort of um, employed more in the strategic formulation of technology. Mm -hmm. And that got me really interested in terms of what technology is actually able to do to get the business outcomes. And you know, one of the great opportunities is for, to work for a company like Shell is that you have the opportunity to actually see different things in different companies in different parts of the world. So it's been an amazing journey so far and, and hopefully not done yet. Okay, super. Now, Shell is a huge organization. Can you tell us a little bit, what is the business of Shell and also what is upstream, what is downstream? So how is that overall organized, some numbers maybe, so that we can get an idea of the, of the business? Yeah. Um, Actually, I was in another interview the other day and somebody asked me to summarize Shell in sort of two or three sentences. Mm -hmm. And I, what I would say is that Shell is an international energy company. And mm -hmm. our purpose is to, you know, powering progress together and basically create more and cleaner energy solutions for our customers mm -hmm. um, in our quest to become a net zero emission company by 2050. And I think the other thing to probably mention is that, you know, we are a company of innovation. And we like to apply, you know, technologies and uh, differentiating technology, including digitalization, to actually produce and distribute more reliable and secure and efficient energy in the world. No. Now, we typically have two main streams of business, or maybe three these days. We have the asset organization that produces oil and gas, mm -hmm. um, uh, upstream, as we call it, an integrated gas. And then we have our downstream business that we actually translate these um, uh, oil, oil products and gas products into products for our consumer businesses. Yeah. Now, somewhere in the middle, we have an organization called Projects and Technology who basically serves both sides okay. of Shell. 
uh, in terms of delivering projects and actually delivering um, innovation and technology to optimize these, these business outcomes. Okay. Now you mentioned already that becoming a net zero company is, is, a, is a major target for the organizations. If, but we live in special times. Huh? I mean, uh, the, there's, there's many things going on, inflation, financial, war, and so on and so on and so on. So there's many challenges for many organizations uh, around the globe. What would you say uh, are some of the, 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 the most important challenges for the shell business today? Yeah, let's just face it, Hendrik. I think the world faces a, a significant challenge. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So we are both based in need of meeting the ever-increasing energy demand. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we need to work to get to a net zero emission energy system. Yeah. Um, and that sounds like a dilemma. Actually, it's a trilemma, I would say. Yeah? Mm -hmm. The world is in need of access to energy, affordable energy, and sustainable energy. Mm -hmm. And I think increasingly also through some of the geopolitical tension that we say see play out in the world, yep. you see how complex that actually is. Yeah? Now, Shell has launched its strategy last year called Powering Progress, where we've articulated our ambition to get to a net zero emission company by 2050. And as a result, we sort of transforming our underlying organizations to make sure that we I think in short, you know, satisfy the requirements of our customers and mm -hmm. society to make sure that we offer more low, more, more low carbon products yep. um, to the world. And you, know, you need to think about you know, hydrogen, EV charging, uh, low carbon fuels, all that kind of sort of transformation in terms of where the company is coming from to yep. make sure that we in line in terms of where requirements of the society actually sit, in line mm -hmm. with where our customer wants to take us provide us for the solutions they need. Yeah. So let's talk about customer maybe first. Huh? So I understand this, uh, you're a very customer focused organization. You put the customer central in your strategy. Could you maybe give an, uh, some, um, some examples on how also IT and digital helps the company to really put the customer uh, in the center? Yeah, um, actually uh, in the recent, um, uh, recent strategy that we initiated, from the customer back is a very cor cornerstone in terms of how we want to think about this. Mm -hmm. Because the transition, the energy transition, will very much happen from the customer back. Yeah. And let me just give you an example for that. You know, individual sectors will have very different customer requirements in terms of how they are decarbonizing their own energy system. Mm -hmm. What that means for the steel industry or you know, commercial road industry or aviation marine will be very different than, for instance, for the B2C businesses. Mm -hmm. So for us to in tune, be in tune in terms of what those requirements are and for us to be able to therefore build digital solutions that answer those requirements is absolutely essential. Yeah. So this notion of from the customer back is not just a business strategy, mm -hmm. it's actually how we think about it in terms of how we bring our digital solutions to life as well. Okay. And you both, you have both a B2B and a B2C business? Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the two different businesses. Yeah, well, I can give you two examples in terms mm -hmm. of maybe to, to underscore that. If you think about B2C, you know, traditionally, of course, you know, people know Shell as the retail stations and we've been mm -hmm. offering our traditional set of products. And that, of course, is changing. We are increasingly offering more low carbon fuels in, in, in our retail sites. We are introducing EV charging mm -hmm. on our retail sites. And just to give if you dimension, we currently have 47,000 retail sites wow. uh, around the world. We have the ambition to grow that to 55,000 retail sites. And currently we only have around 80 to 100,000 charging points on the sites. But our ambition is to grow that to 500. So that sort of requires us to understand what market needs. And from a digital perspective, how we actually wire that together mm -hmm. to make sure that as a customer on a retail station, we actually understand whether you purchase fuels or whether you purchase EV, that we are able to integrate loyalty systems around that yeah. to really give you that one customer experience. Mm -hmm. So very much on the B2C side, I think the progress we're making is actually pretty stellar. 
On the B2B side, as an example, um, it's going to be very much driven out of the different sectors. And what I mean with that is that, you know, the requirements in aviation are going to be very different to the requirements in commercial road transport or, for instance, for the steel industry. Yeah. And we need to be very much in tune in terms of what those requirements really are mm -hmm. to make sure that we build out products that the customer really needs. Mm -hmm. And so that's on the product side. Uh, but I understand also that one of the programs that you're quite uh, proud of uh, is that you have um, built new version of Market Hub, which is the 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 the, the e-commerce platform for B two B. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's it's, it's actually a great example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great example. I think in the world of e-commerce, uh, what, what you would like to achieve, of course, is that people, you know, see and feel the experience frictionlessly and seamlessly in terms of how they actually are used to purchase consumer products themselves. Uh? Uh -huh whether it's from portals or you know, um, products, websites, people want to have that same experience in terms of as their own individual that they, that they have in terms of how they deal with B2B purchases. Yeah. And you know, for us to be able to really do that, we have to stay in tune in terms of what those requirements are. So uh, Market Hub was really what I would say a customer-led initiative mm -hmm. where we spent thousands of hours to actually research customer requirements in a way that allows us to build what we now have, I think, an award-winning B2B platform mm -hmm. that really is in tune in terms of what those requirements are. Yeah? So currently active in 152 markets, you know, 29 languages. We have roughly about 100,000 products sold every month. Mm -hmm. We have a customer satisfaction index, which is 8.7 currently, which just shows you know, how in tune we've been able to build these requirements out. It's a very substantial piece of work where the capability really shines through the fact that we be listening to the customer and what those requirements are. Okay. Actually, you can say it's a B2C experience in a B2B world. Okay. And it's one of the, yeah, what, what you say, one of the biggest e-commerce platforms in the world that, that the rest of us hasn't, has, has never heard of, right? It, it's maybe one of the best kept secrets, but I think we're very proud of it. And, mm -hmm. and maybe even more so than the capability, it's the, the way we've been able to construct the team mm -hmm. and be able to build a philosophy in terms of how the team actually operates, that is truly also from the customer back. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that you know the diversity of the team, um, a sort of batchless delivery between, let's say, IT people and business people, mm -hmm. people that come into the office that are obsessed with actually realizing customer outcomes, that yeah. are clear on intent, clear on objectives, and are empowered to deliver mm -hmm. the strategy um, and constantly improve the outcomes. Uh, I think the culture that we've able to build actually supports the strategic thinking that we have around customer very yeah. much so. And to me, it's a flagship in terms of how I want to be, be seen that other sort of customer-oriented delivery is actually done in Shell. Okay. And this is a pure custom-built uh, platform or, or is it built on some, 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 uh, some other technology out there already? We, we don't want to build custom-built in Shell, uh, <laughs> really. I think we have enough uh, complexity and customization imagine, in, the, yes. in, in our company to deal with. And no, it's built on what we call a market standard product. Mm -hmm. And one of the philosophies that we have in Shell is that, yes, we are cloud first, but we are probably what we call market standard first. Mm -hmm. That we really want to step in in terms of what the market thinks is the standard product offering in that particular market. Yep. And then we take it into Shell and that we, you know, I think the way to think about it is that we accept in terms of where the market dictates the process and we step in line with the process and we understand where we have differentiating capabilities. Increasingly, I would say, it's less about the product, mm -hmm. it's more about the data. Okay. Yeah? So how do we use the data? How do we get to the insights? How do we get to 
data insights to actions, that's where we see the differentiating capabilities. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the, the, the approach that you take for, uh, I mean, such must be a huge uh, project, right? And um, so tell me, when did you start? How far is this already completely rolled out? And, and, and who was uh, involved in developing or in configuring this? What, what was the team that, uh, that put this together? Yeah, in this, this is one of these typical developments that you're never done. I think oh, you're probably yeah. the CEO of something needs to say, when is the diminishing return sort of start to come in to make sure that we accept in terms of where, you know, cost and value are no longer at play. Mm -hmm. But I think this really starts with, um, I would say, a great vision in the business in terms of what we want to bring to the market. Mm -hmm. Because we have a good understanding in terms of what the customer requirements are. Yeah? So mm -hmm. this business sponsorship and strategic insights um, based on the relationship that we've been able to build with our customer, that's where the, the starting point mm -hmm. is. And then to pair that up out of IT or digital team to make sure that we build capabilities to the right individuals, the right teams, under the right strategic intent, mm -hmm. with the right objectives, that's where things have started. So Market Hub started years ago with a vision and an objective, yep. and we'll continue to iterate to make sure that we have value opportunities that we play out through how we bring the product over mm -hmm. time and really very much in terms of you know the release strategy and the iterations that you see very common in the sales world today that's yep. very much the approach we're taking as well but we will be continue to focus on value outcomes what is the business outcome that we're trying to achieve and actually the technology online becomes sort of secondary mm -hmm. importance it is the business outcome that we're obsessed with okay does that also mean that your it is organized more around products uh, around service lines and so on? Increasingly so, I would mm -hmm. say, increasingly so. I think the, we see a level of maturity in the business where product owners mm -hmm. in the business have a really good understanding in terms of what the outcomes are that we're trying to achieve, yeah. who we then can pair up out of IT and digital with product uh, product managers and product development mm -hmm. that allows us to get into the, exactly that, that type of delivery. It's not as mature everywhere mm -hmm. in the business. I think we'll see differences and, and some developments you know, probably still lean for some of a waterfall approach in terms of how IT keeps things te technical mm -hmm. um, sort of current. But more and more we see product type delivery where, yeah. the, where the business takes ownership of product, um, product vision and objectives mm -hmm. and IT partners uh, in that sense in terms of how we develop the product. Okay, so you would say that you're still on this uh, roadmap to becoming completely agile and DevOps and, and so on? Absolutely. I often say to people, you know, my first job as a CIO is to deliver secure and reliable operations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said before, we operate in a very complex set of landscapes mm -hmm. with a lot of, you know, customization from the past, uh, a lot of differentiating in different markets. And we need to make sure that we have the right sort of framework and operating models to keep that sort of secure and reliable. Yeah. But increasingly, in terms of how we think about new developments and how we build, let's say, platforms out in the context of understanding the customer requirements, both in B2B and B2C is going to be based on product orientation. And a lot of that will, be, will follow agile type methodologies. Yeah. And just to give you another example, you know, in the, in the B2C market where I just talked about, a lot of the new things that we bring into market, we will take a very agile approach in mm -hmm. terms of developing out you can call minimal viable products in leading what we call leading markets. Mm -hmm. So we're trying certain value aspects in particular markets, and if it proves value, we scale into other markets. Now you, so you see us taking, you know, maybe very different approach in terms of a few years ago, where we would typically do in these developments globally and touch all markets, whether mm -hmm. it's point of sale systems or, or that kind of yeah. stuff. I think currently we take a very more agile approach where we 
yeah, test out certain value plays in particular leading markets and then see if there's opportunity to scale. Yeah. So innovation, testing out new things, scaling them is, is, is super important. Uh, of course, in, in Shell becoming more and more a digital uh, company, I can imagine. Uh, but at the same time, typically large organization like, like, like yours, with a, with a long history, I'm sure there's quite some legacy around still. So what is your strategy, your vision around managing legacy, managing the technical debt that is, that is, that is out there? How, how big is that of, 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 a, of a focus? Yeah, I, I really often uh, try to avoid the, the world legacy. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, we have a lot of people uh, currently involved to make sure that the current install base of our technical systems runs really smoothly mm -hmm. every day, every, uh, you know, 24 seven yeah. operation. So uh, they are very much part of the future. Yeah. And those systems are also very much part of the future and they drive value for Shell every day. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the way I think about it is that how we sort of re-image our company uh, to become this energy company of the future and how we think about new product and solution development and mm -hmm. the digital transformation that that will take will have to be different than how we build out stuff in the past. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this will be around understanding data requirements, mm -hmm. understanding you know, business processes to the extent what the market actually offers to make sure that we step in line with standards that the market offered and really understand where our differentiating capability sits. Mm -hmm. Cloud first, yeah. absolutely. Um, but, but transformation driven out of digital where we actually give, and I, that's the word sort of that is, that is pretty important in our business today, where we give resilience back into the business. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is that you know, a lot of the things that we're currently transitioning into, uh, we're, we're trying to find a way in terms of what the, the best pace in what kind of market and what kind of product will actually work there. So the worst thing that we can do out of digital transformation is to start to con pour concrete into certain areas where it will be very difficult to transition. Mm -hmm. So we need to build flexibility. We need to build resilience in terms of how we manage these capabilities yep. because that will give the business the most and probably the best opportunity to be as flexible as they want to be. Let's talk for a minute about your cloud strategy. You say cloud first is, is, the, is the strategy nowadays. How far are you and how far do you think you can go into cloud? Is it, do you want to go 100% cloud? I mean, you have a CISO background. Are you also 100% comfortable with, with where cloud is today and where it's going to be in the future? Well, I'm sure every CISO will say 100% comfortable <laughs> is, is, a, is, is not a world that we will ever live in. Yeah. But I think we can be you know, clear on what our risk appetite is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's probably what I would say, risk appetite in what part of the business. And I think in Shell, we need to understand that, you know, our asset type businesses where we produce products, is, it has a very different risk appetite when we go into the consumer business where we have stuff around data privacy and yeah. how we actually manage the data into other types of businesses in terms of where Shell currently is active. And so it, there's not going to be a one size fits all. Um, some of this will be determined about product readiness around clouds. So if you mm -hmm. take, for instance, our ERP um, um, strategy, uh, we have specific oil and gas accounting requirements that currently you know, are not available, available in public clouds uh, just yet. So we'll, we'll follow how the market will go and see mm -hmm. what the readiness around some of these products are yeah. to determine whether what is the right time for Shell to step into you know, what kind of SaaS offering we currently have. But you know the days of us trying to build out our own uh, capabilities by custom-based sort of software solutions are are behind us. Uh, yeah. So we really look to make sure we leverage the market as best as we can, mm -hmm. and and I want to reiterate it again to make sure that we can focus on the data. Yeah, and you still run your own data centers, or is that what's the strategy there? 
um, we, by and large, use uh, hyperscalers and mm -hmm. cloud compute through other parties. Uh, I think there's a there's a bit of a divide and conquer here uh, in terms of strategy. So we're trying to um, uh, avoid running our own, mm -hmm. but we have different partners in terms of who we partner with through running data centers got capability for us okay. versus using, let's say, proper uh, hyperscalers, public mm -hmm. cloud type offerings. Okay. Let's talk about uh, the uh, the net zero uh, ambition again, and and maybe you can give me some examples on how how you see the role of IT and digital in Shell becoming uh, a, a net zero company, and also helping your clients to become uh, uh, more sustainable uh, in the future. Where, where do you see the major opportunities for IT and digital? Uh, it's it's a great question, Enrique, and I think a very relevant question mm -hmm. for us. Uh, so. Um, Shell recently you know, issued its Powering Progress strategy where it sort of articulates the ambition to become a net zero emissions company by 2050. Um, and I personally think that the role of technology in that, in that strategy is very, very important. And let me just give you two data points around that. Um, um, recently, the International Energy Agency published a report and that I think shows that roughly about half of the CO2 reduction that we need to achieve by 2050 has to come from technologies that are currently not developed or deployed yet. Yeah. So they're in prototype phase and, yeah. and people are POCing their way into, into greatness and finding their opportunities. So half is a, is a very significant number. Yeah. Um, another report I, I recently saw is a publication by PwC and Microsoft where they talked about the potential of AI in the world of you know emission reductions and it says something like there's an opportunity for ai as a lever to to have a four percent reduction on greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and you know four percent that's the equivalent of the annual emissions of countries like japan and australia and canada combined wow. you know? so that's a very significant contribution mm -hmm. and not only that you know if you look at some of the opportunities that technology then actually have to attract the younger generation into actually you know, trying to become part of this energy um, trilemma that we currently have and become part of the solution through working on the technologies that are currently out there, I think that offers phenomenal opportunities for companies like Shell. Yeah. So technology is going to save the world or at least it's going to help to save the, uh, the, the world and the planet. I, uh, I think we can say. Um, could you give an example of, of maybe one of the programs that you're working on uh, here in your organization where um, digital plays a key role in, in helping sustainability? Yeah, there, there are many examples, mm -hmm. Hendrik. I think it ranges from you know, how we deploy AI into optimization of our plants. Uh, we're currently deploying AI in terms of you know, optimizing the, the lubricant supply chain, for instance, to make sure that we get our products effectively from A to B in the most optimized fashion, mm -hmm. and therefore, of course, reduce the CO2 footprint of our, of our distribution business. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe one um, uh, example where we can sort of combine technology mm -hmm. and less sustainability a bit more tangibly is around um, sustainable aviation fuels. Sustainable aviation fuels. Sustainable aviation fuels. And, and I think the, the context here is if, if we want to go into a world of net zero emissions, mm -hmm. uh, we have to build out a global low carbon energy system. Mm -hmm. And because just imagine a world where we have customers and businesses who want to purchase low carbon emission products but actually there is very little local supply. Mm -hmm. Or the other way around, where you have you know, suppliers of low carbon energy products who actually need to create a market with very little local demand. Okay, so it's a little bit of chicken and egg, the problem or not. Yeah, so you have to optimize almost, let's say, um, supply and demand that allows you to build out that global sort of energy system. And I think 
you know, sustainable aviation fuels is a great example where, where we try to make sure that that actually happens. Um, uh, sustainable aviation fuels, or, or SAF as we call it, is a, mm -hmm. uh, is a very safe and proven alternative mm -hmm. for the current um, fossil-based jet fuels that we currently have. Actually, it has the potential to reduce gas out emission by roughly 80% uh, compared to the conventional jet fuel. So it's a very important, incredible, um, um, let's say, opportunity for companies mm -hmm. like Shell to actually have a very significant impact in terms of net zero emissions. Yep. Now, uh, the market for sustainable aviation fuels is very fragmented. Huh? And there's differences between where the, where the supply is actually being created or where the demand uh, potentially is being uh, produced. And the fact that it's fragmented has the risk in terms of that investment levels are not optimized. And as a result, of course, supply is not coming up to the, uh, up to the levels that we probably need it to be. Mm -hmm. Now, Shell, together with Accenture and American Express, actually recently um, uh, launched a product called Avelia. Mm -hmm. And Avelia is probably one of the first, I would say, uh, blockchain-powered uh, digital solutions mm -hmm. that creates opportunities for sustainable aviation fuels to have a book-and-claim type approach. And what I mean with that is that we can actually optimize the people who consume sustainable aviation fuels, let's say the airliners, mm -hmm and the people who produce it in a book and record type approach that allows us to make sure we have a credible and scalable mm -hmm. track tracking system that allows to make sure that you know, we basically deal with the imbalance between global uh, supply and demand and we optimize that in terms of the, 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 the level of consumption. Yeah. Now the, the POCs that we're currently running look very promising. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we really are trying out whether we can do this at scale globally and see whether that gives us a credible solutions towards the business travel community. Mm -hmm to make sure that we can actually create a market that allows for more sustainable aviation fuels to come to the market and optimize that towards the companies that need to consume it. Okay. Now, is, is Shell becoming a digital company? Is, uh, it's an energy company. How, how, how big is the digital component of this huge organization? Um, Shell's definitely an energy company. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let me start with that. But I think the digital increasingly helps Shell to transform mm -hmm. its company and make sure that in all aspects of our, uh, of our organization, we drive opportunities to optimize our customer requirements or to drive efficiencies into our organization. Um, um, we have a large uh, IT and digital um, uh, population in Shell. We mm -hmm. use um, significant partners to make sure that we can scale up in those areas where we, uh, where we require it to be. But we do see the demand for digital across the business to grow quite, quite exponentially. Yeah. Uh, so Robert, Shell in total 83,000 people on the payroll today, and then you have all the contractors, so the, the global workforce build, working on, on your projects and your businesses is a, um, is a multiple of that, I can imagine. Um, give us some numbers on, on IT. How many people in, in, in total in IT, if you can disclose that? How many internal, external? And, and then more importantly, how is that organized? How do you uh, organize an, uh, an IT organization in, in a huge company like this? Yeah, maybe I should take one step back before I answer your question. And yep. I think uh, we, we come out of a situation where we relied on you know partners and contractors quite heavily. Yeah, at the back of the big SAP implementations yep. uh, 10, 15 years ago. I think in some ways in Shell, I think we probably lost a little bit our ability to do technical work. Okay. Yeah. So we focused on the strategy and the architecture design and actually the underlying sort of. Um, bringing the projects to life, I think we, we depended too much maybe on our, on on our, on our partners. So some six years ago, we actually reversed that strategy mm -hmm. by insourcing quite a bit of that capability and we created um, one of our delivery hubs, which we call in Bangalore. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and that has been a tran transition for Shell right? because we really make sure is that the 
underlying ability to do technical work, to own the control points in terms of any technical project are mm -hmm. owned by Shell itself. Yeah. And that also has led to quite a significant increase in terms of Shell own IT people. We're probably, probably currently roughly around 9,000, 9,000 Shell, um, Shell IT staff, and probably an equivalent of that in terms of contractors that we, uh, we contract in um, you know, every day. Um, it allows us you know, to make sure that we run our organization effectively through our own people. Mm -hmm. through the projects and the work that we think we should be owning ourselves. Yeah. From secure and reliable operations to cybersecurity, but also through the technical delivery that we do. Uh, we invested quite heavily in the architecture capability. Mm -hmm. we, got, we invested quite heavily in software engineering type capabilities to make sure that we stay in control of our own destination. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you know, the partnerships that we have with other companies that allow us to scale. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's probably the, the, the right way to think about it. Uh, has been sufficiently there to make sure we can make the progress that we want to make. Okay, so how would you describe your IT operating model today? How is the, how is the day-to-day -day organization uh, built? Um, we, we roughly sort of think about three or four different blocks in terms of our IT delivery model. First of all, we have a very thin business interface where, you know, from the CIO down, we partner with the, with the respective businesses. We actually are on most of the business leadership team um, uh, tables, mm -hmm. uh, just to make sure that we set the combined business strategy and understand the digital components around that. Mm -hmm. But a very thin layer of sort of business interface. Um, that, that layer is supported by a significant amount of people who run our operations. Mm -hmm. yeah? So just the install base of IT capabilities, day in, day out, 24 seven, for a follow the sum model where we focus quite significantly on making sure we have secure and reliable operations. Mm -hmm. I, I need to reiterate that again, because you know, given the size and complexity of a company like Shell, that is really where a lot of our focus is, just to make sure we keep things working as clockwork. Then we have you know, a, a, an organization which we call ID Engineering, where basically the technical delivery capability is being held. Mm -hmm. and so let's see it as competency centers or guilds, as we call them today where things like project management, data engineering, software engineering, mm -hmm. uh, change and engage uh, type activities are being held that the, you can sort of say, business IT teams can source in to actually do their project delivery. Okay. Um, and that sort of central capability of technical people allows us to have fungible people across the business to support either upstream or integrated test type projects mm -hmm. or in downstream. And it gives us flexibility uh, across the organization to make sure that we do deploy the right people with the right skills in the right location at the right projects. Yep. Uh, and then of course we have a few more functionally driven capabilities like the architecture or information risk management, but those are the essential building blocks of our operating model. Okay. And so you mentioned earlier that um, becoming a data-driven uh, organization is, is so, so important and that already you do uh, quite some projects around with AI and, and, and so on. Can you give us an idea of where you are in that in that roadmap, where uh, how how mature is the organization around data, and maybe give some examples of, of what is already being done, and and uh, in 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 that area. Yeah, it's a great point, and like, and I would say you know people like to talk about digital. I would say the D of digital is actually data. Mm -hmm. yeah? uh, you know the the necessity for companies like Shell with a huge part of consumer businesses or you know, product type organization businesses, mm -hmm. the, the, the ability for us to actually understand where our data sits, 
control our data through standards and definitions and make mm -hmm. sure that we drive value out of that data through the right tooling is absolutely essential. Yeah. Um, I think we have pockets of excellence and I think we have ways to go. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of our ERP systems where we've been able to standardize and structure our data to the extent that we can actually run global operations is quite impressive and significant. Mm -hmm. And it's been painful to get there. And I think the business really um, starts to understand the, the necessity for them to step into, yep. let's say, really understanding the data. But once we get there, I think people really see the value and that allows us to accelerate on that journey. But there are also areas of the business where we need to do way better. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, the current technology helps a little bit. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if the business wants to step into certain technology requirements, they understand that the necessity for them to control the data is really important. Yeah. Um, but, but we need to do better than what we are today. Okay. Maybe one second on ERP. Where are you? I mean, ERP traditionally has become sometimes a, a dinosaur or a monster, has become very, very big with lots of customizations and so on and so on. And many companies are busy with simplifying that, simplifying their ERP, bringing it to the cloud and so on. So where are you uh, in, in, in your ERP standardization simplification? I think we're probably at both ends of the spectrum, if I am yeah. honest. So there are parts of the business where I think we still have an opportunity to standardize our processes mm -hmm. through um, let's say the introduction of S4-based ERP-type mm -hmm. um, uh, processes. And that is what we're doing. If you think about central finance-type capabilities, if you think about some of our asset businesses, we're currently embarking still on a journey where I think we have a lot of opportunities to standardize the processes. Mm -hmm. uh, in my part of the business, for instance, in, uh, in downstream, we've done that quite a few years ago. And so we are currently able to run pretty efficient global processes around order to cash or supply chain, for mm -hmm. that matter that are based on pretty standard data, um, data and processes that allows us to be really effective. Now, if you want to be a customer business in 150, cost in 150 countries, you require, you'll have requirements around you know, specificity for legal and regulatory yeah. requirements, customer requirements. So there will be an element of customization built on that. But mm -hmm. I think the underlying, I think, strength probably of the ERP, particularly in the downstream, is that we've been able to standardize processes to global to a certain global standard. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure at some point that we'll have the you know, the next step of that journey. Uh, it is a bit of a monster, uh, if we're honest. I think we're quite pleased in terms of how it currently runs, in terms of you know effectiveness and efficiency. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still a a pretty important step to take if we really want to drive you know um, value out of, for instance, AI AI type capabilities mm -hmm. or be more flexible, for instance, in yeah. terms of our customer requirements. We require, we require a, another step to take. Okay. Maybe a kind of an odd question uh, is, 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 Robert. Uh, I mean, you have this huge team. Eh? So a thousand and thousand of people, they're, they're in operations and they're running uh, existing systems. They're also in innovation and trying out new things. So you get exposed to, I can imagine, many, many exciting new technologies. If, is there one that stands out for you and say, well, this is really, really cool. You have like pet technologies or, or things that you say, this is so cool. Maybe not this year or next year, but this will be great in the future. Yeah, well, maybe two things, Henrik. I think, first of all, I think as the CIO, mm -hmm. um, I try to resist, let's say, <laughs> uh, get, getting sort of captured by, by too much, let's say, new technology development. Yeah. Because but we, it can be exciting, right? It, it, very exciting. And I will give you an example for that later on. But the, the reason I want to emphasize that, because 
you know, being credible at the business leadership table, I mm -hmm. think requires us to focus on, on, on business outcomes. Of course, yeah. And I often say to the business, you know, fall in love with the experience, don't fall in love with the technology <laughs> because the technology will change. Yeah. yeah? Um, so I think the notion of understanding where technology is going, maybe more importantly, what are the underlying philosophies and foundations of that technology that you really need to understand, you know, yeah. in terms of the importance of data, uh, you know, a API type strategies, yeah. you know, standard processes, clean digital core, all, all these aspects that I'm sure many CIOs mm -hmm. um, uh, wrestle with um, are very important to make sure that we can actually leverage new technologies. Yeah. Now, to answer your, <laughs> to answer your question, um, it's maybe not so much a new technology, but I've got high expectations from low-code, no-code type developments. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so we call that in Shell uh, DIY, so do-it-yourself mm -hmm. IT. And this whole notion of data democratization and making sure we give tools in the hands of our, of our people yep. to leverage the power of data mm -hmm. and to make sure that we almost drive a cultural change into Shell in terms of how people become part of a more digital transformation and drive you know, simplicity, efficiency, and outcomes first, I think has huge potential. Yep. And uh, I'm very upbeat and optimistic about what that can do for Shell. Um, I recently went to the West Coast and in, in the US and had the opportunity to engage with a few people that sort of you know, talk about technologies that will that will help to sort of propel that sort of notion of low-code and no-code type development. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just scratching the surface in terms of okay. the opportunity. Have you already made your selection there? What, what, what platform are you using? You're going for OutSystem, for Mendix? I mean, there's a number of major players there today. Yeah, we, we, we use a few. For instance, we use a lot of uh, Power BI uh, okay. type products out of, out of Microsoft, but there, there, there are a few sort of products that we use. Salesforce is, is one of them as well. Um, but we try to be well, I wouldn't say somewhat technology agnostic, mm -hmm. but we are trying to make sure that we leverage the opportunity what the market offers in terms of the technology that we can actually apply. Yeah. But the focus underneath is more around, you know, the, the almost the culture change and how we actually can educate the people to become part of this sort of yeah. uh, digital transformation. And more importantly, of course, the way we control the data in a way that actually allows them to, to drive value of that. I think that's where a lot of the focus yeah. is. The technology will come and I think we have to step in in terms of what the market yeah. thinks is actually the dominant at that particular time. I'm, I'm less concerned about that. I think the focus is more in terms of how we get ready for that and how yeah. we drive you know, the, the, the more cultural change into the organization to make sure that we can really drive value out of that. Okay. Now, Robert, with your profile, you're a little, little bit the old one out, not, uh, and I mean, most CIOs that uh, still today that I talk with are civil engineers that spent their whole career in IT and made, uh, made, made their career there and then ended up as, as a CIO. You come from a, from a finance, from a commercial, from a marketing background, and only later on uh, did you upgrade to, uh, uh, to, to IT, uh, if we could say that. So, so you have a special view, I, I think, on the role of the CIO. And so you're very business oriented and, and you talk a little, a lot about your relationship with the business units and, lead and business leadership and so on. So can you maybe give your view on how you have seen the role of the CIO change? If you look five, 10 years back, if you see how it is today, and if you look forward, what's the, what's the, the role of the CIO today? Yeah. I think upgrade is a, is a, <laughs> is a, is a great sort of lens. Uh, some would say, you know, convert to the dark side of the house, but, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, um, I think the role of the CIO has significantly changed. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to give you a few examples, I think 
you know, five, six, seven years ago, I think we were developing IT strategies and currently we are developing business strategies that are digitally enabled. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we used to be focused on cost and efficiency. We're currently focused on value creation. Yeah. Um, we used to be, you know, asking for a seat at the table. Yeah? And currently we have a seat at the table and we are asking ourselves in terms of what, what are we doing with the responsibility to actually help guide the business towards the transformation that we need to uh, need to drive. Uh, we used to be focused on automation of processes, and I think mm -hmm. currently we're focusing on re-imaging the company yep. to drive transformation. So I think the role has significantly changed, and and I think also the responsibility for IT leaders has significantly changed. And mm -hmm. I think we are we're on the verge of you know allowing and probably taking the responsibility as IT leaders to become business leaders with a technology lens yep. that really drive advocacy. I would say at the business table to make sure that our voices are heard in terms of where the transformation needs to happen. Because um, I think increasingly orchestration and prioritization in terms of how we think about um, mm -hmm. you know, rewiring the company, people need to listen to the CIO because we probably see things of, of integrated nature and complexity that others might not see. Yeah. Do you still have a role in, in educating your peers and, 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 and the other C-suite on, on the potential of, of, of digital? Do you still need to inspire them today? Uh, I would say less so on the aspiring side. Mm -hmm. I think more so on sometimes grounding them still in terms of what the basic requirements are to mm -hmm. actually drive value out of digital. Yeah. Uh, all our business leaders you know, talk to other companies and, uh, and other technology companies and and start to understand what the art of the possible actually is. Yeah. For them to also realize that it takes hard work to actually drive value out of the art of the possible, to make sure that you know, change management actually happens, the cultural aspects that needs to happen in the organization to mm -hmm. actually drive value out of these opportunities uh, is really where the rubber hits the road. Yeah? Yeah. So um, I think in my particular case, business leaders get it. Mm -hmm. The implication of what they are trying to do is not always fully understood. And I think we have definitely a role to, to play to make sure we, we okay. do that. What is your biggest frustration today as a digital leader in, in a big organization like that? Only, like can I only, only one. <laughs> um, I, it's not much so much a frustration, but I think my concern is mm -hmm. um, that we are probably still trying to be everything to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, there, it's very difficult to prioritize. Um, all of our businesses require an element of transformation. Mm -hmm. And I think increasingly the CIO sees how these interdependencies start to play out. So we need to manage, as I said before, you know, this role of integrator and orchestrator really well. Yeah. And that also requires us to you know, sometimes stand up and say no. And sometimes tell business leaders that yes, but not now. And I think, um, you know, I, I sometimes say to my team as well, you know, it requires courage yep. these days to actually point these things out. And I think sometimes that leads to frustration because sometimes we get it right and we get it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's really where we have to go. Uh, we really need to make sure that, you know, our view in terms of what the prioritization looks like and, you know, what the choices are need to be made uh, are the ones that the business starts to talk about. Now, there are days that I get that right and there are some days that, you know, uh, that, that I don't. And it's a bit sort of two steps forward, one step back. Okay. Now, Robert, you run a huge team, right? Downstream is... is, is 
roughly half of the uh, of, of the IT uh, organization, which in total, in, including the external people, is 18, 19,000 people. So you manage eight, 9,000 people. I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed. How do you manage a big team like that? So, so let's talk a little bit about your management style. How do you how do you organize a team like that? And specifically, how do you manage that? And how do you, what kind of management style do you like to see in your teams? And how, is, how can an organization like Shell attract and, uh, the right people and make them successful and retain them? Yeah, so there's a lot of, that, a lot <laughs> of elements a lot of in the questions, <laughs> uh, but very important. And I, mm -hmm. and I think you know, for leaders these days to reflect on in terms of what the management style, what is the culture of the organization? Mm -hmm. What's the smell of the place? Uh, how do we think we should be seen and where do we prioritize? I think is absolutely crucial yeah. um, around attracting and retaining talent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, some of these elements will probably be better asked to, to people who work for me. But if, if I would answer the question in terms of the style, I would say um, it's an engaging style with clarity on strategic direction mm -hmm. and led through purpose. Mm -hmm. And what I mean with that is that I firmly believe that, you know, if you think about large-scale team leadership, mm -hmm. that you need to engage the teams around strategic direction. I believe in empowerment and I believe in making sure that we build diversities in the teams that actually are able to deliver um, based on their own accountability. But it's very important that we align on the strategic direction. Yeah? So if you manage a very federated team like I do, because... You know, B2B is very different to B2C and B2C is very different to our trading businesses, for yeah. example. So they own our big businesses in their own right. Yeah. We need to make sure that we have an alignment on strategic direction and we have a grounding in terms of what the values are in the purpose and how we let. Yeah. And I think if you get those three elements reasonably in balance, you're able to build a, uh, an energetic team that actually sort of to radiate clarity of direction, mm -hmm. but empowers people to deliver. Okay. Robert, let's talk a little bit more about how do you attract top talent? Because that's so important in huge organization. If you want to make a difference, if you want to do your digital transformation and so on, having top people and keeping uh, top people is, uh, is so important. So um, energy companies that used to be oil and gas companies, they did not necessarily have a great reputation. Now this, they are completely transforming their business and, and the reputation as well. So how important is that? And, and what is your secret of success of attracting top talent in this organization? Yeah, uh, it's, it's one of the, probably the top three questions that, um, uh, that dictates my agenda these days. Mm -hmm. uh, very important. Uh, and unfortunately, there's also not a silver bullet answer mm -hmm. here. Uh, I would say it takes hard work. Yeah. Um, and it takes very deliberate thinking and strategy to make sure you, you can do that. And it's, it's actually three things. It's attracting, developing and retaining talent. Mm -hmm. um, well, what I would say is that developing a clear strategic frame in terms of what it is that people, you know, um, get themselves into. So what, what, what is it that, you know, people can work on uh, is very important. And what I find increasingly with the younger generation is that the you know the dilemmas around the energy transition are very top of mind and increasingly i think people want to be part of the discussion part of the solution yep. rather than just have an opinion around it uh, i also find that people want to know who they work for mm -hmm. yeah so clarity of leadership style you know uh, making sure that we um, have transparency in terms of what it is that people work on that they have visibility of leadership 
exposure, um, be empowered to actually deliver on, on the projects that they deliver, and ability to be recognized for it mm -hmm. are some key ingredients in terms of how people actually uh, want to join your organization. But it means that you know myself and my leadership team need to spend probably 30% of their agenda um, every single day on those aspects. Mm -hmm. um, choosing the team rather than the individual. Yeah. Making sure that we are able to formulate pieces of work that are relevant in society, both technically in terms of outcome. Mm -hmm. Making sure that we actually give people the visibility around success. And yeah. I and I got a great example in terms of how, the, how that, for instance, works, um, are, are, are very in, important aspects. And you know, the examples around, we have something which we call the CIO awards. So awards. Every, quarter, right. yeah, every quarter we award individuals or teams, preferably teams, um, uh, natural teams, diverse teams, you know, cross-functional teams around uh, outcomes and achievements. And you know, what we've learned typically during the corona pandemic is that in addition to the monetary recognition that comes with awards, actually the symbolic recognition in terms of giving visible no, it's uh, very is, is very important. And what we now do is they, you know, they get to report out their achievements every quarter to me in a sort of half an hour call and you know, 15 or 20 people jump in and they present and they share the learnings around some of these things. And the feedback we're getting around our ability to, it doesn't matter what seniority, it doesn't matter what part of the organization, it doesn't matter really what people worked on yeah, in terms yep. of to give them that level of visibility and the recognition that comes with that yep. is so important. Yeah? So, you know, credible leaders that offer relevant work and gives you the opportunity to shine and give you the recognition for that, those yep. are very important uh, ingredients, I would yep. say. You have four major hubs where your IT teams are. Where are they? They're in Houston. Mm -hmm. um, they are in London, the greater Hague area, as we call it, because it includes Amsterdam, um, so in the Netherlands, and a hub in Bangalore. Okay, let's touch uh, quickly on diversity, because I must, as, I mean, that's not an easy topic, I can imagine. Um, I mean, it, still an, an energy company is still, uh, I can imagine, still a very engineering-driven culture and, and, and approach. So where are you in your diversity roadmap on gender and other types of di diversity? Yeah, I, I think the best way probably to describe is we, we're the best we've ever been <laughs> and uh, half as good as we need to be. Okay. Yeah? Um, so it's, it's, it's very important, it's high on our agenda and, and again, I think talking about my earlier point around engaging, we, we engage with the population quite a bit on that. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a couple of things to say around that. If you don't formulate your ambitions into action and if you don't, if you're not able to show progress against these actions, I think it will be very difficult to uphold a credible story to your people. Yeah. So you need to be seen in taking very deliberate steps towards achieving your objectives, and whether it's you know uh, uh, female male diversity or, for instance, our uh, our Bangalore talent mm -hmm. to bring that through to the senior levels. We we really need to make very deliberate steps to get there, and and we're working very hard uh, to do so. I think for Shell it's also because we're traditionally an organization where people are brought up in the own organization to to more senior roles to to continue to do that to continue okay. to nurture the talent that we have but increasingly also look outside to make sure that we augment it mm -hmm. with, with, with uh, you know, new leaders and, and, and leadership type capabilities that we don't have in Shell today yep. and bring them in at certain levels of the organization, which also allows us to uh, address some of the D&I &E, &E, uh, sort of objectives that we have. But I think 
and actually we recently did a staff survey again, we do that every year, and I think I'm very proud to see that some of the feedback we're getting from our staff is that people are recognizing the transparency that we're bringing around the journey that we're on, yeah. and they're also recognizing the progress that we're making. But there's so much more to do. Okay. Now, if people watching this video and they're interested in, uh, in, in joining Shell, why is it that you would um, need to come and work here, and, and why would they come and work for you? Well, you know, Shell, Shell is an amazing company mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, but I, I would say, and particularly also for the younger generation when I engage with them around graduates or in universities, I think people want to work on things that matter. Mm -hmm. So the relevancy of, for instance, the energy, uh, the energy system and the, uh, the complexity that it offers, and I talked about this trilemma before to make sure that we offer the world you know, access to energy, and affordable energy and sustainable energy, are real life societal problems. Yeah. And you can work at a company that sort of recognizes these problems, actually has shown quite strong ambitions in terms of what we do with these dilemmas, mm -hmm. um, and recognize the role that digital can play in that. Yeah? So to become part of the organization that is willing to invest, willing to develop people, willing to make an impact on society, uh, offers great opportunity for many people to join Shell. And, and by the way, I see a lot of people who want to join Shell. Mm -hmm. and so we are currently also not just in you know, the India market, or, but also in the, in the more traditional markets that we operate, um, where, where digital talent is, of course, still scarce and people need to work hard. At the yep. moment, we actually explain our value proposition to people, explain our values and the care for, 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 for staff and how we actually support that with development, mm -hmm. but also correlate that in terms of what they can actually work on yep. and the autonomy and the empowerment that they can actually have to make an impact. That combination, I think, is very powerful. Let's talk a little bit more about you, about you as a leader and um, your, your leadership style. If I would go around and talk to the people that work with you directly and, 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 and B2B, B2C and all the different teams there, what do you think that they will say about you when you're not around? It's a, it's a great question. Um, I think they will probably say that I'm engaging and engaged. Mm -hmm. And what I mean with that is that I like to know what's going on. I do a lot of skip level uh, conversations. I do a lot of go-sees. Um, not so much to get in the way of teams, but just to make sure I know what's, what's, what's happening to make sure where you know, I can help and, and I can sort of accelerate some of, the, um, some of the dilemmas maybe that they have and remove that. So I know what's going on in the organization. Yep. And I engage people on it. And so I'm, 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 people will probably say that I'm approachable, relatable. Um, um, clarity on strategic direction, but, but probably they, they probably will say that I know what's going on in the organization and I'm focused on removing hurdles and problems that face them to make sure that we can accelerate on our journey. Okay, more. Let's dive deeper into your personality, uh, Robert, because I think the, the, there's a big correlation about the success, the professional success that you, uh, you clearly have and the way that you are wired, the kind of personality that you have and the characteristics in there. And you shared with us that your personality type you know, is, is an uh, ENFJ. Uh, in Myers-Briggs terminology, it's a protagonist and that's a person with extroverted, intuitive, feeling and judging personality traits. And, and these are typically warm, forthright types that love helping others and that tend to have strong ideas and values and they back their perspective with creative energy to achieve their goals. Now I'm gonna give you five typical strengths of uh, protagonist and, and, and you tell me if you recognize yourself uh, in these. So 
Protagonist ENFGs are typically very receptive, they're very reliable, uh, very passionate, altruistic and charismatic. Does that fit the bill here? Uh, again, it's, it's always a bit, but, but I think by and large, I think I, I recognize that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, uh, as I said before, I think I'm an en engaging individual. I, will, uh, I don't like to be locked up on whatever floor on Shell Center in, uh, in London and have an opinion about uh, stuff mm -hmm. that's happening in the teams. I would like to make sure I understand. Um, and I like to be able to lead by clarity of direction. Mm -hmm. yeah? So I, I think I recognize some of them. Okay. Yeah? In our CIOs, if I look at the, the profiles there, I would say 50% are more on the F side, the feeling, the emotional side, uh, and, and at least 50% are more on the rational side. What does that, does, and I'm more on the rational side, so I'm trying to understand you being uh, stronger with emotions, and, and does that mean that you're very strong in, on the people side and building relationships and leading teams? Yeah, I, I would actually say sometimes I feel internally torn. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I think I am. Uh, I think I, I focus a lot on trust, on building teams, on mm -hmm. building um, you know, personal clarity in mm -hmm. terms of expectations that are based on human interaction. Uh, at the same time, I think I'm also pretty strategic in terms mm -hmm. of making sure that we articulate a direction that is actually gives us a sort of common ground to work on and make sure that we are yep. clear in terms of where we need to go. So that's sort of... I guess almost internal debates sometimes in terms of whether I, stand, I spend my time on the rational side of things and, yeah. and, and formulate the clarity of direction that I think the organization needs versus spending more time on actually operationalizing that in individual yeah. conversations. That's where I try to get the balance right. Yeah. Now, as, as, a, as a top leader, you sometimes also have to make tough decisions and difficult decisions. How difficult is it for you to make difficult decisions? I mean, meaning that you're very uh, focused, I think, on relationship, on people, on, on, on feeling of, of people and so on. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. And it's, uh, you know, making tough decisions specific, specifically if they involve individuals, specifically mm -hmm. if you have invested relationship with these individuals. But um, I have also learned that if you leave, you know, situations that are not working, lingering on for too long, it just gets worse. Yeah. yeah? Uh, so sometimes, you know, making the tough decision is actually showing the love for the individual to make sure you, you see through. And what I've learned in these conversations is that being open and honest mm -hmm. and being transparent around why um, you have certain, certain conclusions or certain ideas is always the right, uh, the right solution, even if the other person don't, don't agree. Okay. Uh, because people will value, in the end, I think, transparency and authenticity um, even if that leads to a difficult conversation. Okay, now we talked about strengths. Let's flip the coin and, uh, and, and talk about the typical weaknesses of the protagonist, uh, or let's call them development area. So uh, ENFJ's weaknesses can be, they can be unrealistic, they can be overly idealistic, they can be condescending sometimes, they can be very intense or overly empath uh, empathetic. Do you recognize any of these? What are your development areas, things that you consciously work on that you know that you have to, uh, to do better on? Well, I, I recognize some of them as a, uh, let's say an area where I need to balance the composition of my team. Mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah. And I think that's probably where it comes down to. So if you understand your strength in terms of um, where you can actually help the team to propel to, let's say the levels you want to operate, um, but you also understand that that will always come with weaknesses, and I'm sure you pointed out a few of them where there are risk of, of, of pitfalls mm -hmm. that you fall into. You need to make sure you compensate that through the composition of the team. Yeah. Um, and I've got a few very rational people in the team. 
Okay. Um, I've got a few people who anchor my ambitions uh, because some of these things also come down in terms of formulating pretty strong and high level ambitions to mm -hmm. make sure that the impact that we can actually make and, and ground these ambitions into reality uh, and make sure that we have credible plans to actually deliver that. And, and that to me, you know, is one of the important lessons of leadership, yeah? understanding your own strengths and weaknesses and make sure how you, um, how you think about that in terms of the composition of the team is extremely important. Okay. Robert, what is it that really drives you? When at the end of the week, when you fly back from London uh, to, uh, to Brabant in, uh, here in Holland, um, what, what makes you feel happy? What, uh, what must have happened? Uh, what must you have realized so that you've, you say this was really a great week? Yeah, many different things can actually make me happy. Mm -hmm. um, I am always looking for a sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So I like progress um, uh, in many ways. Uh, it can be uh, delivery of new capabilities that we bring to the market, you know, uh, co breakthrough conversation with the business around complex problems that we need to get to. But I, I, I like the, uh, the concept of accomplishing things, yep. uh, more so as a team than as an individual. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm... I'm less focused on what makes me personally happy. Uh, I'm more focused in terms of what we set out as a team achieve and, uh, and the progress against that. Um, I would also say, you know, getting back home uh, sometimes is, uh, is easy, is, a, is, a, is easy, it's not easy, is a, is a, is a great uh, achievement in itself. Uh, mm -hmm. Being away from the family is not always easy. I can imagine, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, having the opportunity to be with them again is a, is a great accomplishment in itself. Mm -hmm. and, and actually getting that balance right as a, as a family is, um, is something I really strive for. Yeah. So you have two kids, uh, 19 and 15 teenagers growing up very fast. Um, what are the the core values that you and your wife are passing on to your children and what are the core values that you yourself live by? It's great. Um, great question. I, I, I suppose sort of contemplating how my son or my daughter would answer the question. <laughs> um, I, I think um, embracing life mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that we understand that we are privileged, I think is, a, is one of the core values. Uh, I was having a conversation with my, uh, my daughter the other day, who's currently in university, and I said to her, you know, you, you, we need to understand, because we talked about DE&I and, and, and some of the opinions out there, and it's not easy in these, uh, in, in these sort of times to be a teenager and formulating your own thoughts around, around that. There's quite some polarization going on, and we talked a little bit about that. And I said, well, for us to understand that, you know, uh, talent is probably evenly distributed in the world, but opportunity is not. Yeah? So how do you relate that to your own position and how do you understand that it's you know, out of privilege yep. that you're able to grow up over here and be on the university? And if we understand that, how do we translate that privilege in the decisions that we make every day to mm -hmm. you know, respect that, enjoy it and probably appreciate it, but also to work to give other people that privilege too? Yep. And I think that motivates me individually and that motivates us as a family as well. You know, we... we some, some, um, I had an engagement with a uh, performance coach the other day and he mm -hmm. talked about sort of your moment in the light, which resonated really well with me. So if you appreciate your moment in the light as mm -hmm. an individual, teenager or as a leader and what you can do with that moment in the light to actually make an impact for the people who come after you, because mm -hmm. you actually come after people as well, I think is a, is a really powerful concept. So what are you doing with your life and what are you doing with your time in the light mm -hmm. to actually make impact? That's what we talk about and think about. 
And so what is outside of work really important in your life? I, I tend not to miss the Saturday football game of my son, okay. uh, <laughs> a highlight of the week. Uh, spending time with family and friends, um, uh, re really important for us. And as I said, you know, being not always there with, with the family throughout the week, um, trying, trying hard to make up for that when we do spend time together that we make the most of, uh, make the most of it. Okay. You worked 32 years here at Shell, so I can imagine, and, and you have made quite a career, so I can imagine there are important people in your life, mentors, people that you have learned from. So could you maybe mention one or two, or people that you look up to in general that, that inspire you? There's so many people, mm -hmm. uh, and it requires me probably to tell a bit more of a personal story. Um, mm -hmm. I lost my parents really young in, in, in my life, but I was really blessed that uh, I had an elderly brother who sort of picked me up, oh, yeah. um, I would say, uh, and his wife, by the way, at the age of 13, and, uh, and took care of me. Um, uh, and took me in their home, in their family, and of course it was my brother, but still, you know, um, for a 13-year-old boy to be raised by a brother, uh, and for him and, and his wife to sort of put the energy and focus in to make sure that they um, uh, they support me through my early and probably very important stages in life, mm -hmm. um, um, I'm, I'm internally grateful for. So he's one person in terms of the, you know the the sheer um, you know love in the family uh, that he brought to to me uh, is something that I really respect. Yeah. Um, Equally, uh, you know, whilst I didn't have my, my parents around, the fact that I've now got, you know, very healthy and lively parents-in-law uh, uh, in Brabant uh, makes me very grateful. Uh, mm -hmm. My relationship with, very, uh, with them is, is, is great. Uh, I look up to them in a way in terms of how they look at life, mm -hmm. how they value little things. Uh, they're, they're from a very little village in Brabant and always stayed there, but the, the, the worldview that they've developed and the ability to talk about that is, is mind-blowing and uh, humbling in one way yep. and, and very encouraging in another. So Robert, losing your parents when you're 30 must be a terrible thing. But at, at, uh, but at the same time, I can imagine that, that this has formed you in a positive sense uh, as well. So can you reflect on that? What was the impact of losing your parents at that age? And, yeah, it's, 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 of course, definitely very, very impactful. In fact, I, I lost my father when I was young and my mother, well, I was young, one, and my mother when I was 13. Wow. Um, and of course, it has a, you, you mature probably a bit quicker mm -hmm. than, than other people in life. Um, it also probably taught me that the necessity to, to take care after myself uh, mm -hmm. and make sure I... Uh, I invest time in myself because, you know, other than maybe my brother and his wife in the beginning, nobody necessarily will naturally do it. Yeah. That was one of the, the early realizations. So I think it shaped my work ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I tend to sort of work hard and, uh, and you know, uh, don't take anything for granted and, and make sure that I, I feel that I earn some things because I, uh, I work hard for it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably one of the learnings. I, I've been extremely blessed throughout that period in life that the people I end up with meeting, in particular also in Shell, have taken a, a lot of interest in me. Mm -hmm. So I've got a lot of people throughout the 32 years in Shell that, you know, sometimes give me a, a kick in the backside or motivated me or, mm -hmm. you know, inspired me to, um, to be the best self that I could bring to the work and, and therefore develop the career that, I, that I've done. Um, so that's that notion of leadership that we talked about before and ability to look up to people yep. and the, um, yeah, the, the, the environment that they create for you to, to excel in mm 
mm-hmm. uh, I've learned um, by, by my own experiences. Okay. Do you have a personal mantra, a saying that helps you in making, I don't know, decisions or uh, if uh, lead other people? Um, maybe not so much a mantra, but I think this notion of uh, this is our time, mm-hmm. um, what I just talked about, and our time in the light, I think is something that guides me uh, every day. So if you understand that you come from a privileged background and if you understand that this is your time to actually make decisions and make a difference, mm-hmm. what are you doing with it? Yeah. And I, I hold up the bar to myself every day, every week to say, you know, what is it that we've done today to make sure that you actually make a difference in terms of, you know, the work that you do and the people that you lead. Uh, that definitely is a mantra for me. Okay. What is it in your lives that you fear most? I think what I've learned, uh, so it's the fear, maybe some of the, the mistakes I've made in the mm-hmm. past, is that you know sometimes you know something is not right, mm-hmm. or I, I, you know me and my team sometimes we, we smell things are, um, are are not right, and we and we don't do anything. We 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 work a little bit longer on it. We try a little bit harder, but we should have intervened earlier. Uh, it's not sometimes the you know, decisions that I've taken or not taken, it's the fact that we've taken them too late. Okay. Uh, um, is, uh, is definitely some of the learnings I have around the bigger mistakes I've made in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fear of, you know, when are you still needing to support and continue to, you know, help people to excel while well, yep. you actually start to sense out that this is, this is not going to work. And uh, yeah, that, that is something I need to get better at. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I mean, com- Back to my, my profile person, I'm, I'm typically a person that continues to support and remove hurdles and obstacles to actually be successful. Mm-hmm. At some point, I need to probably listen to my inner soul a little bit, a little bit better and, and, and intervene. Okay. A bit of a special question. Um, if you look at yourself or maybe if you talk to the people around you about you, what would you, if, and you can only select one, what do you think is your most important gift in life? That's a really hard question. <laughs> That's a really hard uh, question. Um, I, I think my willingness to invest in people. Okay. So understand people, give them trust, give mm-hmm. them empowerment to really make sure that they can, you know, bring their best selves into work mm-hmm. and, and the best opportunity. Uh, I think that's that's probably where, where I will probably see where my gift is. And I... Um, I have a passion for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I, tr- I strongly believe that if you invest in people and lead people, you get a lot of trust back and that allows you to, to do extraordinary things in, in, mm-hmm. in organizations like, like Shell. And, and the reward is so big. I mean, the, the recognition that you get from people back and the, you know, the emails, the phone calls, the, the little messages I sometimes get from people after you know, coaching advices and all that kind of stuff is, mm-hmm. is what gets, keeps me going. Okay. Yeah. Now we come before we go to the last question of this uh, interview, uh, Robert. I would already like to thank you. It was really a brilliant uh, conversation. I learned a lot. Um, but there's also young people that watch these uh, these interviews. So maybe as kind of a summary, what is the advice that you would give to young professionals that want to follow in your footsteps? Well, there's never been a greater time to be in IT or digital, I would say. I think mm-hmm. the opportunity space to really work on stuff that makes impact in society um, through digital revolution is, is just you know, exponentially bigger than maybe in the generation that you and I mm-hmm. grew up in. Um, but I would say to, you know, to the younger generation, try to do it in a, in, a, in a part of society that actually makes impact. 
-hmm. You know, we probably all can work for for the bigger tech companies and, you know, further improve our phone experiences. And then, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But to actually start thinking about the opportunity that technology and digital technology actually brings around, you know, um, subjects that that change society, like, for instance, the energy transition, Mm -hmm. there is a real opportunity to make a difference. And so I would only... You know, advocate for, for young people to get really involved in technology, understand the, the art of the possible, and try to apply that into, into parts of society where we can, we can actually make a better life. Okay. And on that note, Robert, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.